All right, New Life Friday Night family, grab your seats. Tonight we're in our second week of our Advent series, and we've got a really special treat. We have Dr. Chris Green from Tulsa, Oklahoma here. Now, some of you have been here before on a Friday night when Dr. Chris has been here. He's been a friend for the last seven or eight years, and I'm not exaggerating when I say I think he's one of the brighter minds one of the brighter theological minds on the planet right now. He's an author, he's a pastor, he's a poet, he's an artist. He, he's, it's an embarrassment of riches, really. Uh, God took a, a little extra longer when Chris was coming through the, the creational line. Um, but anyway, Dr. Chris is here and his family, Julie, and two, their two boys. Their daughter's a student at Syracuse out in New York. So tonight, open your hearts. We're gonna open the scriptures And would you join me in giving a great New Life Friday night welcome to Dr. Chris Green. Good evening. It's good to be here. So as Pastor Daniel said, we we drove up from Tulsa where we're living now. Yesterday we had 10 plus hours in the car together. Intense family bonding time. Not bondage time, bonding time. I had a a call at one point, sometime, it all melded together, but toward the the last few hours of the trip, so I'm on a call, and the boys are being remarkably quiet throughout the phone call, and as soon as I hang up the call, Emery, who's the youngest, says, yeah, I I think Clive knocked my tooth out. And of course, being the wonderful parent, dad of the year candidate that I am, I just said, oh, I'm sure you're fine. His mother, truly parenting him, said, let me, let me, yes, it's loose. It's in fact loose. They had been scuffling in the back, you know, brotherly love passing between them. And this morning he woke us up to show that the tooth had been knocked out. So family bonding time limited to one loose tooth, one lost tooth. I'll take it. Like it could have been worse. It absolutely could have been worse. It's a joy to be here. Again, it's the second time that I've been. I don't have any clue. Since COVID happened, I've lost all sense of time. I mean, it could have been a month ago I saw you. It could have been seven years ago. I don't have a sense of that. But I'm really, really excited about what I get to share tonight. In fact, I think I walked off and left this Bible. Can you run it up to me? I'm going to read from my grandmother's Bible tonight. Thank you, Em. So my grandmother, I've been preaching out of this Bible since I was seven or eight. It was given to her when I was four. So pretty much as long as this Bible's been alive, I've been preaching out. There's a recording of me when I'm nine years old preaching a sermon about sin as Satan's bondage. And if you don't recognize how the grasp that a nine-year-old can have on the ways in which Satan wants to bind us to sin, let me, let me tell you, it, it involves this. It was a 40-plus minute sermon. The only person you can hear agreeing with me is my grandmother in the background, <laughs> bless her. And it was about the, the ways in which we must read the King James Bible. So I was raised in rural Oklahoma in an old school, sweaty Pentecostal church where everything came out of the King James Bible. Right? Even to this day, when I'm teaching classes or speaking, if I quote the Bible off the cuff, I quote King James because that was what was drilled into me. So in this sermon, the nine-year-old version of me gives a list of sins in ascending order of grievance. The first was, if you read anything other than the King James Version, you might as well smoke 100 cigarettes a day. 
which is a lot. I mean, I don't know about you, but that seems like an excessive amount of smoking. But remember, we've got an ascending order of offenses here. So if you read anything other than the King James, you might as well smoke 100 cigarettes a day or murder someone every hour. So that was a serious escalation. And then, if we had time, I'd let you guess. Some of you may have heard me tell this story before. The most grievous sin that my nine-year-old mind could grasp was you might as well be a Catholic priest. So smoke 100 cigarettes a day, murder someone every hour, or worst of all, be a, be a Catholic priest. And I was preaching that sermon from, from this Bible, in fact. So I'm, I, I knew this morning, obviously, that I was going to be using this Bible to preach from tonight, and I woke up to this image. It's one of my earliest memories of my grandmother, and it was of her washing clothes on the back porch. Now, they owned an electric washer and dryer, but she would often do the laundry in a wash basin anyway. And I have these really sharp memories of being a small kid, younger than nine even, being out on the porch with her while she washed. And she would wash these, usually whites, in this basin. And she would work them over, right? Do her magic on them. And what I woke up to this morning is that image, thinking what the Lord was prompting me to do, is to let him do that kind of work on us tonight. So we're just going to let these scriptures soak into us. We're going to let the Holy Spirit work them, all the stains that have we've accumulated over the course of this week out of us, all those anxieties and fears, bad ambitions, concerns, just let the Spirit agitate us in the water of these scriptures and see what happens. And my job is just once it's done to ring you out and leave you hanging. That's, that's, that's my responsibility. So enough said, Isaiah 35 from Nan's King James Bible, of course. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given into it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Thus the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall break, for in the wilderness waters shall break out, and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, in the habitation of dragons, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. Where? Where the dragons were. Where the dragons were, a highway shall be. And a way. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, 
though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go upon it thereon, go upon, go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So let's let this soak into us for just a moment. We'll go to Matthew 11 after that. Isaiah, most of us know when we think of the prophet Isaiah, we think of his call. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. When we think of Isaiah, we think of the beginning of his ministry, and we think of the, this moment of incredible glory, unspeakable glory, that the doorposts of the temple shake as this angelic host gathers, the Lord himself appears, and Isaiah recognizes, woe is me, I am unclean. I dwell in the midst of an unclean people, unclean people. And yet, he remains present to the Lord. We all think of that moment in which the angel comes near with the coal of fire and touches his mouth with the fire from the altar, and Isaiah is cleansed. That moment in which God says to him, I'm sending you. And Isaiah, knowing what's ahead of him, knowing that he is not going to be heard, knowing that in spite of what he's seen from God and despite of the certainty he has of the goodness and the glory of God, that he will not be received as a prophet. He still says, send me. Here I am, send me. Knowing that he's doomed not to succeed in communicating to everyone else what God has communicated to him. And sure enough, Isaiah has a long, long, long career, perhaps more than 60 years of prophecy. He sees a lot happen. All kinds of things come and go, kings come and go. And at the end, he's killed in Jerusalem, just like prophets always are. But when we think of Isaiah, we don't think of the end of his life. We think of that call, that moment of glory, the moment of ascendancy. And out of that comes the songs of Isaiah, this series Odes to joy. But this man who knows from the moment he sees the Lord that he will not be heard, yet he is sent and gladly goes and goes singing. He's walking a road. He knows that road is going to end with his death. He knows that all along that road, he's going to be ignored by the people his heart goes out to. He knows that his words are going to fall on deaf ears, that everything he sows is going to fall on fallow ground, and yet he walks that road to the end, and he walks it singing. And out of him comes this song, a highway is there. Right where the dragons were, God makes a highway, a highway of holiness, no ravenous beast is there. Not even a fool can stumble on this road. And the ransomed of the Lord come with singing. And sorrow and sighing flee away. Those aren't cheap words. This is a man who knows sorrow from the inside. This is a man who knows what it is to sigh with the sigh of the Lord. And yet he says on this road, our mouths are filled with singing. Kierkegaard has this famous line in which he says, we make the road by walking it. That the life of faith 
is a life of stepping out, trusting that the next step will show itself once I've taken the one that needs to be taken now. We make the road by walking it. But what Isaiah suggests is that the road makes us as we walk it. That God has made a way, and if you walk it, you may start as a fool, you may start as a lion, you may start with sigh, but somewhere along the way, you go from fool to wise. You go from lion to lamb. You go from sighing to singing. You don't make the road so much as the road makes you. But you've got to walk it. You've got to step into it day after day, season after season, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent. You've just got to keep taking the steps. The road will make you if you stay to it, if you stay on it. And what's stunning about this, what's stunning about it is that Isaiah 34 is a word of God against all the nations. The word of God is, I am going to come and I'm going to spare no one. And out of the word of impending judgment in Isaiah 34, suddenly we hear, and in the desert there will be streams. That in the very place where the judgment of God falls, suddenly out of that judgment springs mercy. This is what Isaiah knows, and he's known it from that moment that he saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, that every no God speaks has a yes hidden inside of it. That every act of judgment that comes from the Lord is an act of mercy in gestation. It's the beginning of God turning you back to this road that ends with sorrow and sighing fleeing away. And notice Isaiah says, the Lord is going to come, and he's gonna come with vengeance. I told you, I grew up in old school Pentecostal churches. We preached about hellfire and brimstone all the time. As a kid, I was terrified of hell. I was more terrified of the rapture. And I was terrified most of all of the judgment of God. I think about how diseased that is. I feared God more than I feared damnation. That's, something's off. Isaiah says, God is coming with a vengeance. God's revenge is not like our revenge. God's vengeance doesn't work the way our vengeance does. God's anger does not work like our anger does. God's judgment does not work like our judgment does. Just a few weeks ago, I had one of those moments in prayer where suddenly it hit me. that There's this fundamental difference between what we fantasize may happen and what we learn to imagine can be true. Vengeance is what we fantasize about, but reconciliation has to be imagined. And only hearts and minds that have been awakened by this holy God Isaiah saw can imagine rather than fantasize. So when Isaiah says, the Lord will come with vengeance, those of us are still in the grip of fantasy, still in the grip of our fears. We think, oh no, What if God comes? What's that going to mean for me? Or worse, we think, yes, I know what that's going to mean for my enemies. But notice what what Isaiah says. He's going to come with vengeance, and suddenly the blind will see. Suddenly the deaf will hear. And then the lame, who've not been able to walk, will spring to their feet and find their way. This is what the vengeance of God is. It's destroying everything that has been destroying us. 
that when God's wrath breaks into your life, it is for you, not against you. And every weapon that's been formed against you, when God's weapons come, they come against those weapons. And every sword that's been raised, he makes into a plowshare. Every curse, he makes into a blessing. Every rejection, he turns into an embrace. And you learn this as you walk the way. And that's why your sign becomes a song. Because you realize nothing you can do against me is going to matter when this God is infinitely creative. Everything you meant for evil, God can turn for good. And it was that hope that kept Isaiah on the road. Every time he was rejected, every time his word was ignored, every time his promise was dismissed, he remembered, I know who my God is, I know what kind of vengeance he brings, and this song, in the midst of the sorrow, this song would well up in him. Where the dragons are, he will make a way. Now, Matthew 11. Everybody okay? Matthew 11, verse 2. Now when John, John the Baptist, now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again. Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight. Do you remember that? We just read what happens when God comes with vengeance. The blind see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. All of those signs that he promises are going to come when God comes in vengeance. Jesus says, that's happening right now. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel. And that's Isaiah's word. Beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring the gospel. Jesus is saying, everything Isaiah foresaw, I'm enacting. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. What an odd word. I mean, listen to what he said. The blind see, the deaf hear, lepers are cleansed, the lame walk, the dead rise, the poor have the gospel preached to them. How can you take offense at a God who does that? God's ways are not our ways. God's vengeance is not our vengeance. And if we're still in the grip of fantasy, we want a God whose vengeance is like our vengeance. We want a God who punishes those we would punish if we had God's power. And Jesus says, I come bringing what God has promised, not what you want, but what you need. Not what you fantasize, but what I imagine. Not what your nightmares tell you, but what my dreams declare. Blessed is he who's not offended in me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitude. So notice, they're walking away, these two disciples, and Jesus wants to make sure they overhear what he's going to say about John. As they departed, Jesus began to say, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? 
a reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went you out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John is going to get this report too. And Jesus wants to make sure these two disciples and the crowds overhear what he's saying about John. And notice, he contrasts him directly with Isaiah. Everything that Isaiah promised the Messiah would bring, Jesus says, I am bringing it. But those who wear soft clothes are in the king's palace. Where does Isaiah live and do his work? In the king's house. Where is he when King Uzziah dies? In the temple. He's at the center of those power structures. He's a prophet. He's where he should be. But John is more than a prophet. There's something greater. Every work of God is transcended by the next work of God. Like whatever God has done, the next thing God does is better than the thing he's just finished doing. This is why when Jesus sees Mary in the garden and she tries to cling to him, he says, do not cling to me. I must ascend. She's in love with the Jesus she knew, but the Jesus who is is better than she remembered. And so what Jesus is saying here is that John comes before my face. Isaiah saw me high and lifted up. John is going to show you my face. Not that the walls are going to shake and you're going to feel the weight of the glory. You're going to see my face when John comes. But where is John? Not in a palace. He's in the prison. And what he's living with is not a word, not a declaration, not even a song, but a question. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? Now, there are some people who want to question God, and I don't know how seriously to take their questions. But when this man questions, we should listen. Jesus says, no one greater has been born than this man, filled with the Spirit from before he's born, lives his life in prayer filled up with the fire of God. He's the one who sees Jesus when no one else can see him. Behold the Lamb of God. This is the greatest of the prophets. This is someone more than a prophet. And he's the one who said, he's the first to see, the first to say, the first to recognize the Spirit is settling on this man. I'm not worthy to unlace his shoes. When that man says, are you the one, we should listen. We should stop and ask ourselves, what can lead this man to that place? So I want us to let the spirit agitate us for a moment. Get down in the soapy water of these scriptures and let it rub against you a bit. I think perhaps what's happening here 
is that John is asking a question about Jesus that's really a, a manifestation of his own doubt of himself. Remember, when John announces Jesus, he says, I am not worthy. We sang it tonight. I mean, we sang it with all our heart. And the soul felt its worth. God, our God, the God who is, doesn't want to intimidate us. He's not giving you a spirit of fear. God doesn't need you to feel unworthy in order to show his worthiness. God's glory is not made by your shame. God's greatness does not come at the expense of your humiliation. Our God is humble. He doesn't humiliate. So when John says, I'm not worthy, that may sound pious, but I wonder if maybe that's what he thought he was supposed to say. But in fact, it was this deep, deep seed of doubt about who he really was that now is showing itself. Are you the one is a way of saying, am I true? Or am I unworthy? I'm, I think one other passage of scripture that underscores that is what happens with Peter. Remember, Peter is so quick so quick to acknowledge his own sinfulness. Jesus wants to wash his feet. And what does Peter say? Don't wash my feet, I'm not worthy. Yeah. Now what happens next for Peter? He denies Jesus. There's something about feeling ourselves unworthy in the presence of God that's a sign that we don't so much want God, we want to feel worthy. You are worthy. But your worth is not in feeling your own empowerment through a perfect life or through great giftedness or through wonderful accomplishment. Your worth is in the fact that you simply are you. You exist because this God loved you and loves you in being. Not because of anything you do or fail to do. Not because you sin or keep from sinning. Not because you achieve great success or fail. You matter to this God. That's why you're here. And the moment those questions of worthiness start seeping through, you need to recognize that's the beginning of this kind of doubt. So maybe that's what's happening with John. Or perhaps it's a sign that he's actually deepening his faith. There are some questions that come before faith is mature. There are other questions that come once faith is mature. The opening of the Gospel of Luke when the angel appears to John's father, what does John's father say? How can this be? And what's the angel's response? Hush now. You need a little bit of silence. Just stop talking. I wish I had that power. I would have used it yesterday somewhere about hour five or six into our trip. Hush, just, just hush for a bit. But just a few verses later, the angel appears to Mary and says, this is going to happen. What does she say? How will this be? And there's no hush. Because some questions are faithless, and other questions are more faithful than any declaration we can make. So maybe what's happening here is not doubt, but a deep, deep, deep faith. Jesus, I need to know, are you the one? And maybe the question is not so much, are you? But do I need to look for another aspect of you I've not seen yet? 
Are you the one I thought you were or are you another in truth that I need yet to see? Am I like Mary clinging to the Jesus I knew when in fact the Jesus you are is greater? Some of us need to be asking that question. God, are you who I thought you were or are you another? Not that you've identified the wrong God, but that God is more than you've identified to this point. I'm almost done. Or maybe, the church fathers suggest this, maybe John isn't asking the question for himself. Maybe he sends these two disciples because he wants his disciples to start to find in themselves this curiosity about Jesus that are gonna lead them to seeing what John has already seen. Maybe this is not his question at all. It's a question for them. I wonder, isn't this like the Spirit? That sometimes the Spirit just stirs up the right kind of curiosity in us to reorient our attention to what's possible. So maybe all that's happening here is not that John is doubting, but that out of his deep confidence in God, he knows he can risk asking this question because God's gonna answer it for them. He needs them to ask the question. Or, one more possibility, I'm sure there are many more, but one more I want you to consider. And this comes from Gregory, one of those Catholic priests that I was so worried about as a nine-year-old. I didn't know this when I was nine, but Gregory was the son of a Roman senator after the glory of Rome had long faded, the 500s. And one day as a young man, he sees slaves in the market and he asks about them and someone tells him, those are Anglo-Saxons that look like me, more or less. Probably better looking than me, but you get the, you know, the gist of it. And when he became bishop, one of his first acts was to say, send missionaries to that place. Those slaves he saw in the market stayed in his heart all of his life. We might not know the gospel if it weren't for this man. Think about that. The compassion that sprang up in him and seeing people so far back in our lineage. That man preached a sermon from this text when he's a bishop. And he said, what John is doing is not doubting. What John is doing is not even teaching his disciples. John is asking Jesus for another call. I'm almost done, so stay with me. Now we're deep in the water. And Gregory said, John is saying to Jesus, I was the one who was able to announce your coming into this world. And now I'm about to go out of this world into death. Would you let me be the first to announce you there? Let me be the first one who pushed into Hades, raises his voice and says, behold the Lamb of God. What I love about that is that that had never crossed my mind as a possibility. Because when you and I read the scriptures, we read it to the measure of our own maturity and the limits of our own imagination. And that's why we sometimes need to brush up against people who've walked that road the Lord has made a little longer than we have. And for me, there have been many people like that, but no one closer 
than the woman that gave me this Bible. So I'm going to leave you with this idea. It's one thing to see the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. But if you keep walking this road, at some point, you look like the Lord in a prison. What you're called to is not to see God, but to look like God. What matters most is not what you see of God, but whether or not others see God in you. The reason John is more than a prophet is that he didn't just see God. He didn't just speak God's word. He became exactly like God. And in the moment of his lowest, deepest pain, what he wants to do is announce good news. What he wants to do in the moment of his imprisonment, just a hair's breadth from having his head removed, is to speak up for Jesus in ways that bring peace and life and light and joy. We're not called to know God only. We're called to be so much like God that for people to know us is to brush up against God, to smell God on us, to hear God in what we're saying, to sense God's nearness in our presence to them. Will you stand with me? I want to pray, and then Pastor Daniel's going to come. I don't mean this in any cliched sense. I think there were certainly, for John, moments in which that that prison is hard to stomach for him. I don't think he was just gladly there. I don't think God wants us to suffer. But I do think God wants us to go to those who are suffering. And to be his people is to find ourselves in locations where we don't want to be. You remember Paul and Silas, they're thrown in prison. And what are they doing? They're singing Isaiah's songs. And what happens? The earth rattles and the bars fall away. And all of my life, I heard that preached and sang as the moment of deliverance. And we danced and sang our way right out of those prisons. But that's not what Paul and Silas did. When that earthquake came, birthed by their song, and the walls fell down, they didn't walk away and leave everybody else to the jail. They said, yes, we could walk away, but that's not who our God is. We're here precisely to bring his vengeance so that the blind see and the deaf hear, and these prisoners have the liberty of God declared to them. Some of you need to hear this. The pain you're in, God didn't put you in it. But while you're in it, God is there. I know I'm taking a a bit of time. I may never get a chance to do this again, so I'm going to push this for two more minutes. Thank you. I'll take that. Several years ago, I was having this moment wrestling with God. Jesus, why? At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, I was in prison and you visited me. I was in prison and you did not. It hit me right between the eyes Jesus, why didn't you go and visit John? Why don't you practice what you preach, Lord? And almost immediately, I heard the response. What I said was, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. 
The reason Jesus didn't go and visit John in prison is because Jesus was inside John in prison. The reason Jesus didn't go and show up to visit him is that Jesus was inside of him. When they visited John, they were visiting the Jesus who was living in him from the moment of his conception. And you need to hear this. God didn't put you in your pain. And you're wondering why he's not visiting you in your pain. He's inside you in your pain. And when the walls fall down, don't walk away from your pain. Sing Isaiah's song right there, right then. God, we are afraid, but how could we be afraid when you are in us? Greater are you who is in us than the one who's in the world. God, we want to share in Isaiah's song, but we also want to share in John's question. So my prayer for my brothers and sisters in this room tonight, especially those who feel like they are at the end of their rope or they've already dropped the end of the rope, that they will know you didn't put them there, but you are inside them there, and the song can burst out in that desert, and where the dragons have been, you will make a way. In Jesus' name, amen. Chris, please lead us, please. Lead us in communion. Would you open your communion elements, church? Something's moving in Chris right now that we need. So lead us to the table of the Lord. My grandmother, Nan, is what I called her. Everybody called her that once I started insisting on it. Nan was, all of her life, my wife can testify to this, she was afraid of death all of her life. When family members would pass, she would have a hard time going to the funeral. She wouldn't go to the, to the cemetery. And then a few months before she passed, probably a year and a half before she passed, she started showing signs of dementia. At that point, we were living in Tennessee, my wife and I and the kids. So on one of my trips home, I'm sitting with her, with Nan. And she, at this point, was pretty far gone. She had a few moments of clarity now and then, but mostly she wasn't there. And she had been fantasizing about various things, like out of her mind. And one day I'm sitting there holding her hand and she turns and looks at me. And I realize if you've ever been around dementia patients, you, you know, you can see right away, she's here. And so I'm looking her right in the eyes and she says, I'm not okay, am I? And I was like, well, you're, you're okay, but no, you're not okay. She said, you know, I've been afraid of death all of my life. But now that it's here, I'm not afraid. I'm ready. I'm ready. And she said, some of these things I've been talking about, they're not real, are they? And I was like, no, it's, but it's okay. Like, it's all right. You're fine. And she broke into this wide smile. And she said, remember this. If you're going to lose your mind... You might as well have a little fun with it. <laughs> and that was the last conversation I had with her. That's the song, Breaking Out of the Prison. And even that old Pentecostal woman with her hair piled up 
with her mind mostly gone, when death was at the door, when the dragon was there, what she says is, I'm not afraid. I'm going to have a little fun. Where does that come from? On the night he was betrayed, our Lord took bread and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. He's looking not just death in the eye, he's looking deeper than death to the way God is making out the other side of death. When we break this bread, we are showing not just that Jesus suffered, but that he made a way. In that gap between these broken pieces is the way God makes through death into eternal life. Jesus, thank you for this. And as we take it, Holy Spirit, make this a share in his body. Take it eat. That same night, again, the night of his betrayal, knowing what's on the other side of that door, he took this cup and he blessed it. And he said to them, drink this, drink all of it, all of you, to remember me. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of many. And we're saying blood, but what it is is wine. Because God takes that death, that sorrow, and he makes a song in the middle of it. Staggering it is that his death speaks a better word, not a death that cries for vengeance, but a death that becomes a feast. A feast where the enemies sit down at the table with us and celebrate a God whose ways are not our ways. So Jesus, thank you for this. And Holy Spirit, as we drink it, make it a share in the blood of Christ. Drink it, all of us. Church, we're going to worship the Lord that we've just heard about right now. We're going to sing praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit three in one. So let's take a moment here and worship the Lord from the depths of our being. Come on, church. Let's give him thanks.